Amen. Hope you're having a beautiful July morning. I mean, October. Uh, if you turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 10, just got a couple more weeks in the book of Mark. We're going to, I think, finish it off uh, next week. And then we'll pick it up at a later time and we'll move on to something else. Today we're looking at Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Well, as many of you know, over the last couple months we've been working on renovating the parsonage which is the house next door to the church, um, because the the previous tenant kind of uh, left it in quite a mess. Um, So we've been working on doing that. Um, So uh, Pastor Phil and I were working in there, and I asked Pastor Phil if he could uh, work on the kitchen floor one day. The kitchen floor, it looked okay, didn't look real bad, but there were gaps in the floor. And I asked him, can you try to fix these gaps, close up the gaps, and maybe fix around the edges so that the gaps don't come again? So he spent some time in the kitchen and tried to, tried to you know, clean it out really good, tried to put it back together, but he couldn't do it. He said, no, it, they're not really moving, there's not much we can do. And so we kind of debated whether we should replace the floor or leave it as it is. Because um, it, it didn't look terrible, it didn't look great, but it, it wasn't that bad. So we're just kind of debating there if we should invest in the time and the money to replace the whole floor. And uh, eventually we just decided, okay, we, get, we just got to do this. We got to replace it. And then as we started ripping up the floor, we found that underneath, through those cracks, the dogs that were living in there had peed. 
So all underneath the cracks, all underneath the entire floor was a layer of pee that was kind of causing the tiles to kind of stick to the floor so that they couldn't move. So we were really happy that we did that because if we didn't do that, the whole house would have stunk uh, and we wouldn't have known where it was coming from. But on the surface, it looked okay, it looked decent. And today we're looking at a story of a man who looks okay on the surface. Actually, he looks pretty good on the surface. The text tells us that he was wealthy. He had a lot of possessions. Now, in the Jewish mind, and even in the Old Testament, having a lot of wealth and possessions was a sign that you were blessed by God, that you had done a lot of good things, and therefore God had given you the blessing of possessions. It's even kind of hinted at in the Old Testament, that's in Psalm 128. It says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. So he looked really good. He had a lot of possessions, the blessing of God. In the book of Luke, we see that this man was a ruler. Uh, We don't know exactly what type of ruler, but based upon this conversation, we can kind of uh, suggest that we can kind of indicate that he was a Jewish leader, maybe a part of the Sanhedrin, perhaps even a Pharisee. So he had a kind of spiritual authority or spiritual clout. And based on what we know about him, he's very different than the other rulers that we encounter in the book of Mark and throughout the Gospels. Most of the time when rulers encounter Jesus, they're trying to trip Jesus up, to catch him in an inconsistency, to catch him saying something that's blasphemous, to try to get other people to go against him. Generally, they're hypocrites taking advantage of those around them. Kind of using their spiritual privilege to oppress those around them. Telling other people they should or shouldn't do things and then themselves breaking those same commands. But this man is very different. He comes to Jesus. And we see that he's different right from the beginning. He comes to Jesus and he bows down before him. A great sign of respect. We see that he refers to him as good teacher. An enormous sign of respect. It says in the text that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's the highest form of the word love uh, in, the, in the New Testament in Greek. According to one scholar, one scholar writes, there must have been something rare and admirable in the man, for of no one else in the gospel does Mark say that Jesus loved him. In fact, in the four gospels, when we encounter Jesus Uh, meeting with rulers, Pharisees, Sadducees. Most of the time, he's speaking very directly and very harshly because of the way they're approaching him. But this man is very different. And we see that his question, his request of Jesus, it's an honest question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds and says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now this is a statement that's been debated and questioned by scholars because it On the surface, it looks like Jesus is saying that he's not God. But the title of good was a title that was rarely applied to rabbis. It was only reserved for God. And perhaps what Jesus is saying is, you're calling me good, but are you prepared to accept me as being God? You're calling me a good teacher as if I'm a good moral teacher, but are you willing to accept the fact that I'm not just a good moral teacher, I'm God himself? You can't have both. I'm either just an ordinary rabbi or I am the good teacher, God Himself. And then in response, 
uh, to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Notice one of those commands is not in the Ten Commandments. The, the command to not defraud your neighbor. Of course, that command is kind of given and kind of as a foundation in the Old Testament, but it's not one of the Ten Commandments. And perhaps the reason Jesus included that is because this man was rich, and especially in the ancient world, and even today, oftentimes people who are rich got their riches by taking advantage or defrauding the poor. But the man responds, he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. And what I find so interesting about this passage is Jesus doesn't question him. Jesus doesn't argue with him about that. He doesn't call him out as being a hypocrite. He doesn't call him out as being a whitewashed tomb. He doesn't call him out as being dirty on the outside, filthy on the inside. He doesn't challenge him at all when this man says, I've kept all these from my youth. This indicates to me that this man probably had kept these commandments. He was a good person, a moral person. He was devout, a nice person to be around, treated other people well. But though he looked really good on the surface, there was a problem. A very deep-seated problem. Notice when you look at these commandments that Jesus quotes here. Most of them are from the Ten Commandments except for one. And all of them deal with how we treat one another. All of them except for the, all of them are from the second half of the Ten Commandments apart from that one. Now the first five of the Ten Commandments deal with how we relate to God. The second, of the, ten, the second half of the Ten Commandments, second five, deal with how we treat one another. This person has the treating one another down. He understands how to treat other people. But he's missed the most important of the Ten Commandments. He missed, he's missed the foundation of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. He's gotten the people part down. He's been a nice, moral person. He treats other people fairly, but he's missed the most important part. And so Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then come follow me. For this man, his money was his God. His money was the thing that directed him, that gave him life, the thing that made life worth living. And so when Jesus calls him to give up those things... He walks away. He returns to his wealth. Apparently, he thought that he could come to Jesus, that he could follow Jesus without actually giving Jesus his heart. That he could come to Jesus as a nice, moral person who treats other people well, and that he could just make Jesus a part of his life. But Jesus won't just be a part of our life. He demands that we give him our hearts. As he says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for he, he, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, this passage shows us that it's possible to have everything and yet miss the most important thing. It's possible to have everything on the outside and yet miss the most important thing. So the man goes away sorrowful. He really wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted to follow his wealth more. He's a moral person, kind person, but he's a godless person. 
And after Jesus has left, after uh, this man has left, his disciples look at Jesus. And and Jesus says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this astonishes his disciples. And Jesus continues and he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle to than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you might have heard an interpretation of this passage uh, that kind of gets around the kind of absurdity of this passage. And the the interpretation goes like this. Um, It's thought that there was this city gate around the city and that it was called the needle gate. And the needle gate was this kind of really short gate And for someone to get through the needle gate or for a camel to get through, they would kind of have to get down on their knees and camels don't like to kind of crawl on their knees. So it would be hard for them to enter into the gates. That's a great thought, but there isn't really any evidence to suggest that that needle gate actually exists. So when he's talking about the camel and the needle, he's talking about a literal camel, a literal needle. One of the smallest objects you could think of, one of the largest animals you could think of and it's it's absurd it's absurd that someone could fit a camel through the eye of the needle you could try your whole life it ain't going to happen something really big something really small and that's the point that's impossible it's not going to happen now when we think about wealth and we think about possessions it's easy to understand i think why possessions would be a barrier to entering, entering into the kingdom of God. Now we think about wealth in terms of money and possessions, but the real meaning of wealth and possessions is much deeper than that. Wealth and possessions really represent control for us. I mean, let's say you have a little bit of money. Just a little bit of money. And so you're able to rent a little tiny apartment. So in that apartment, you have control of it. You can choose how to decorate it, you can choose how to do things, but you can't choose some things. You can't choose to knock down a wall, you can't choose to put in a new fireplace, but you have some control. But maybe if you have a little bit more money, you get a bigger apartment, or a little bit more money, you have a small house, a little bit more money, you got a big house. And it goes on and on to the point where, you know, some people have so much money that they could buy an island, or buy a helicopter, or buy a boat, or or whatnot. And if you have that, if you have that ability, it's really a means of control. That you can do what you want. You control that island. You control uh, this boat. You control this airplane. You can use those things for your purpose. That's essentially what money and possessions is all about. It's about being able to control something. And this idea of control is kind of one of the gods of our culture. It's kind of rooted right into what it means to be American and to the idea of the American dream. U.S. adults were asked a number of, a few years ago what their idea of the American dream was. 74% it was the, it said it was the freedom to accomplish anything. That's control. 68% said it's the freedom to say or do what they want. Control. 64% said that their children would be financially better off, that the ability to control how their children live. 
And 61% said that it was being financially secure and other control. So you have unlimited money, you can do what you want. You can buy an island, you can have a boat, you can have an airplane. And so when you have a lot of control, when you have a lot of possessions, it's harder to give those things up. It's harder to give up control. If you only have a little bit of control, it's easier to give that control up. Now, does that mean we should sell everything that we have? Give everything we have to the poor? Should we follow what Jesus says to this man, literally? I don't think that's the case, because Jesus doesn't call everybody in the Scriptures to sell everything they have. He doesn't tell, you know, this, this person is one of the few people that we see that he commands, commands him to do that. And the reason is because for this man, it was his idol. It was the thing that directed his life. It was the thing that gave his life meaning. The point is not that we, whether we have possessions or don't have possessions, the, the point is whether possessions have us whether possessions control us, if they're the driving passion and motivation in our lives. If that's the case, there's a problem. If that's the case, maybe God is calling us to sell all we have and give to the poor. But it's not wrong in itself to have possessions. They can be used for the glory of God. But as Jesus communicates this truth to the disciples, they're entirely perplexed by what's going on. They said, well, I thought that wealth was a means of being blessed by God. I thought that this person was blessed by God because of his wealth. I thought being rich was a blessing. And guess what? I know that guy. I know that ruler. He's actually one of the few nice guys that I know in the synagogue. I mean, he, he always treats people fairly. He keeps the law you know, a, lot, a heck of a lot better than we do. So uh, if he's not in, if he's not going to be saved, then... What hope is there for us? I mean, he seems like he has it all together. We're just simple fishermen who are following you around. What hope is there for us? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. In other words, left to our own devices, we all have that proclivity to go towards idols. To try to fill the void in our hearts. To... Try to give our lives meaning and substance. Jesus says, I've come to find that you might be forgiven. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can do the impossible. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God can free us from our idols so that we no longer worship money and worship God. Guess what? It's not just money. This passage is about money, but it's not just money. It's impossible for anybody to enter into the kingdom of God without God's work in our lives. It's not just about money. In the first part of the passage we read today, talked about little children. Now Jesus says that we must receive the kingdom of God like a little child to enter in it, into it. Little children don't have a whole lot of control. They don't have a lot of possessions. They don't worry about what's in their bank account. But when they have a need, they cry out to their parents. That's the kind of attitude that Christ is looking for. That we come to Him with our hearts abandoned to Him. 
That we come to Him with our request. We come to Him with our needs. That we depend upon Him for all things. That we become like little children. And that's what essentially His disciples are. They're like little children. I mean, you think about them, and some of Jesus' disciples probably still own possessions. Peter probably uh, still had a house at this point. But they've left their families. They've left their stuff behind. And they're just kind of wandering around following Jesus. Probably not actually even knowing fully where they were going. But they depended upon Him and they trusted Him. And Jesus encourages them and says, There's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Jesus tells his disciples when we leave things behind for the gospel, when we make sacrifices, God will reward us. It won't be like we lost something. He will reward us in ways that maybe are unexpected, maybe we don't see coming. Sometimes that might be financially, but other times it might be through relationships with God's people, through the blessing of being able to serve Him. But God will reward those of us who leave something for Him. And He also reminds us that it's not just a life, the Christian life following Jesus, it's not just a life, a cakewalk where everything goes well. He reminds us that with persecutions, he adds with persecutions in this passage, he says persecutions will come. But God will bless us when we step out for him. And also he says in the age to come, God's followers will have eternal life. So imagine you're asked the question, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you'll spend forever with Jesus when you die? How do you answer that question? Do you say, well, overall, I'm a decent person. I'm a moral person. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I don't lie. I honor my parents. I'm a nice person. Or do you say, I've left everything else behind to follow the one who gave his life for me. To follow the one who paid for my sins. Who paid for my debt on the tree. God is not interested in our religious rituals. He's not just interested that we would be nice people. He wants us to be nice people. But He wants our hearts even more. Tim Keller gives an illustration to this regard. He says, imagine a woman, a poor widow who has an only son. And she teaches him how she wants him to live, to always tell the truth, to always work hard, to help the poor. And she makes a very little amount of money, but she works hard to put him through college so that he would have an education. After he gets out of college, he hardly ever speaks to her again. He occasionally sends a Christmas card once in a while, but he doesn't visit her. He won't even answer her phone calls or letters. He doesn't speak to her. But he lives just like she taught him. Honestly, industriously, charitably, Would you say this is acceptable? Of course not. The same way God created us and we owe Him everything. And when we do not live for Him, but we live a good life, it's not enough. We all owe a debt that must be paid, Keller says. It's possible to have everything and yet miss the most important thing. 
It's possible to be a moral person and a godless person. So maybe you're here, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you are a decent person, a nice person. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life, you followed the rules. But this passage reminds us not to miss the most important thing. Not to miss what really Jesus wants from us. That He wants our hearts. He wants our worship. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, we live in a culture of excess. For the most part, we have a lot. Even the very poorest among us are rich in comparison with most of the world and through, in comparison with most of the people throughout history. We're rich. And in a culture like that, doesn't mean that we have to sell everything that we have. It doesn't mean that we have to you know, try to avoid having anything. It doesn't mean that we have to take the lowest job to just you know, have nothing. That doesn't, that's not what Jesus is talking about. But it means that we need to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. That's the most important thing in our culture. That we guard our hearts. That we make sure that our hearts are fully devoted to Jesus. That they're not tempted to go after the trappings of this world. Or that's money. Or that's any other idol that might tempt us to go astray. That our hearts are fully devoted to Jesus. Because as believers, we know that Jesus is more valuable than anything we could ever have in this life. That a relationship with God really means everything to us. That Jesus does change everything for us. That anything we give up, anything we lose for the sake of the kingdom, Jesus will restore a hundredfold. And we know that when we get to heaven, we'll have eternal life. doesn't mean we'll just... Life will just continue forever. It means that we'll get to spend forever in the presence of our Lord and Savior. That changes everything for us. The missionary Jim Elliott, I'd like to close by a quote from him uh, from his journal. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador who ended up giving his life for Christ. And in this uh, quote that he wrote in his journal, he talks about the delight and the joy that he found in his relationship with God. And as we look at this, this should be the heartbeat that we have. The delight that we find in Christ. He says, I walked out to the hill just now. It's exalting, delicious. To stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart. To gaze in glory and to give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for Him. If only I may love Him, please Him. Mayhap in mercy He shall give me a host of children that I may lead through the vast star fields to explore His delicacies, whose fingers and set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see Him, smell His garments, smile into my lover's eyes. Ah, then not stars nor children shall matter. Only Himself. Church, let's not have everything and miss the most important thing. God wants to know us. God wants us to be in an intimate relationship with Him. God wants to have our hearts. Let's offer up our hearts to Him. Let's live with the understanding of what's most important. 
that relationship with Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. And that because of that, we can have life. Eternal life with You. A life that never ends. A life that we will never grow old. Most importantly, a life spent with You. Uh, God, I just pray as a church, we would be people who understand what's important. That we would put our relationship with You first and foremost in our lives. That as a people, we would give our hearts to You. That everything we are, we would give to You. That we would offer it up as a sacrifice to You. And as we do that, we know that You will bless us. We know that You'll give us opportunities to serve You. And that You'll give us Your joy. God, we thank You for what You're going to do. And we thank You for Your presence with us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.